This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We live in a fallen world. It is a broken, dysfunctional world. More importantly for us, we human beings are fallen. We're not what we were made to be. We're not what we shall be. I don't know where you are right now, but if you were raised in the United States, you were probably imbued with a strong sense of self-reliance. That may be a great virtue in civic life and in business, but it may not be a virtue in the Christian life. We need help as Christians, and Christians can help, but the question is how. Ed Welch has been a Christian counselor for 30 years. He's a faculty member at CCEF in Philadelphia, and he's an adjunct professor of pastoral counseling at Westminster Seminary, California. He's on campus this week to talk with our students about Christian counseling and about his new book, Side by Side, Needy and Needed. He is author of several other books, too many to name here, but among them are When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, and several others. And he joins us now to help us learn how to help others. Scott, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you face-to-face, too. Indeed. Thank you so much for being on campus, Ed. It's exciting to have you here, and I know the students are excited. And you just talked this morning, and you'll be talking with us again tomorrow in Convocation. So let's do some basics. One of the criticisms that people make about biblical counseling is that it encourages unqualified people to try to address complex medical and psychological problems. So here's the question. Is biblical counseling a contradiction in terms? And if not, why not? I assume that in any criticism, there's some kind of truth to it. And so I take what you're saying very seriously. Yet at the same time, there are other things that I'm thinking One of the better kept secrets in psychotherapy, in secular care of souls, if you will, is that the best helpers are the friends who have a certain amount of wisdom and stick-to-itiveness. They care for you over a longer period of time. And in many ways, secular psychotherapy is trying to achieve that kind of relationship. It's a secret, but it's true all the same, that even though human problems can be very complicated, the best helpers tend to be those folks who listen, try to understand you, don't say things they don't know anything about, and love you over a longer period of time. And now to bring that into the scripture, what we expect to find in scripture is that ordinary expressions of love are used in extraordinary ways. Paul talks about weakness, I'm thinking of First and Second Corinthians now, and under the heading of weakness and foolishness, a lot of really fine things take place. And, and Scripture talks about, well, I, I didn't, you know, the Lord says, it's not like I, I attracted all these experts, all these people who are incredibly talented. No, I, I'm after the average Joe who is familiar with his or her weaknesses, and then in our ordinary expressions of love as weak people, that's what the Spirit uses to do extraordinary things. So, your, your point is well taken. Can we speak about things where we shouldn't? Absolutely, we can do such a thing. But at the same time, I think all of us, if we look at our own lives, the people who have been most helpful haven't necessarily been these experts who have this expert understanding of humanity. They're ordinary people who have loved us. You used a really interesting expression. You said secular psychotherapy. And then you joined that with the expression, an old Christian expression, the care of souls. That is a very interesting conjunction, because if we 
just break down the word psychotherapy. It means literally the care of a soul. Why is it we're so ready to accept that other people who don't start where we start with God's Word, with the grace of God in Christ, with the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, all of those things, the church, the means of grace, those things that we take as basic, why is it we're so willing to accept their norms and not our own norms when we've been talking about the care of souls for 2,000 years? I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that secular pastors, if you will, those who do secular care of souls, they tend to be very kind people. They tend to be compassionate. They tend to be moved by the struggles of others. That's their strength. Let's say that ministry consists of two parts. It consists of knowing a person, knowing a person accurately in such a way that they feel known. And then the question is, how do we speak God's truth to that person who is increasingly known. There are the two parts of all our pastoral care. Uh, Secular cure of souls, it has the first part. It has knowing someone, caring for them, being moved by them, being moved by their sorrows and their struggles. But they don't have much on the second part. Now, what do we do? Given those things that you've said, what can we say in return? But that first part is huge, isn't it? Who do I want to talk to about things and struggles in my own heart? I want to talk to people who are going to listen, and and they're really going to try to understand. Is it possible sometimes in the church, since we have scripture, there's a lot we can say, do we shortchange that first part of ministry, just having the privilege of knowing someone and carrying their burdens on our hearts, and then together thinking, what does God say? So, I think that's one reason that secular psychotherapy has a certain inroad in the church, because there's compassion that people inevitably hear from non-Christians. There's a certain care that sometimes we're not as patient with each other and don't extend the same kind of care and compassion. We have this giant book of answers. <laughs> and and yep. they really are answers. But as you say, there's a first step before you get to the answers, and that's the listening. And being gracious and patient, as you say, bearing with, and taking the time just to be with people when they're suffering. Isn't one of the greatest things that we struggle with when we're suffering, even if it's self-inflicted, is that we feel isolated and all alone. The greatest promise in all Scripture is... I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Which is saying, oh, by the way, the problems that you're feeling this particular day, they're not necessarily going to disappear, but the Holy One will be with us in the midst of them. That's ultimately what we're looking for. We wouldn't mind our problems being gone, but it's even more important to have the right person with us in the midst of those problems. So, in that sense, listening to somebody is not simply a means to an end. It's following what God says. It's knowing someone. It's having them on our hearts. It's in a derivative way. I'm going to be with you as a human can possibly be with you in the midst of your struggles. And is it any surprise that that's a very profound ministry? God the Son became incarnate, and He didn't just wander around dispensing bromides and handing out answers. Much of the three years that he spent in ministry on earth was simply being with sinners in their midst, which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, surely he preached and surely he taught, but he did more than that. And sometimes we reduce him to sort of a, a walking uh, answer machine. 
But what he was doing was he was breaking down barriers between mm. the clean and the unclean. Mm. And he was venturing off into the world of the unclean and saying, you are my people as mm. well. In fact, you happen to be the very core of my people, which is another expression of I am with you. And rather than being on the outside of the kingdom of heaven, the, the people that Jesus was pursuing were the ones who he put in the very inside of it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Isn't it the case that one reason why people find the professional secular psychotherapist so attractive is that they participate, even if unintentionally, in the cult of the expert? They have the white lab coat. They have credentials, and not that those are unimportant, but in our culture, we tend to value that quite a lot, rather than, as you were suggesting, a friend who is with us, uh, who will be with us over the long term, who is wise, who listens. And so we go, just as we go to the mechanic for our car, right? Uh, We go to the physician for our broken arm. We go to the expert psychotherapist with the credentials in the lab coat to get our heart, our head fixed. Certainly, we live in that kind of culture where we're looking for the professional, we're looking for the expert. And the notion that wisdom develops over time and with experience and grows gradually in lives, we certainly believe that. And so, we are grateful for people who have wisdom and experience, and we're happy to go to them. We want to go to them. It's it's essential. Yet, at the same time, I think there's something deeper than going to the expert, especially when it comes to care of the soul, as we're describing it. And sometimes it's simply that a person who's the professional, it's not that they have all the answers, because secular professionals and Christian professionals, we know we don't have all the answers. It's the regularity that somebody experiences where each week they have an appointment where they are going to be able to speak about the things that are on their heart. Sometimes I think that's the most engaging part about the expert. The expert, you have to pay for it, obviously, but the expert will make time for you every week. And it's hard to do that in the context of a busy church. If we're struggling with something that seems to be chronic, to have access to another brother or sister every week for a half hour to an hour, who could try to understand, who could direct us to the truth, who could pray for us, it's hard to find those kinds of relationships. And there's something, too, about paying for this, don't you think? Uh, If you go into a store and they discount a perfectly good product down to, say, 20% of its original value, you look at that and you think, well, there must be something wrong with it. It's highly discounted. Why are they getting rid of it? Well, who knows? Maybe they need the shelf space for the new model. But if if it's 100% or 120% of its original value, you think, wow, look at that. That's pretty expensive. That must be a pretty good thing. And so maybe there's that attraction of paying the professional and getting the high-quality care. I think that you're on to something, that you get what you pay for kind of thing, and free help is worth what you pay for. And which is sometimes true, right? That that could be true, but I think at the same time, we can't be snookered by things when it comes to the human soul, that we know things that touch us. If we're meeting with somebody and we're paying $250 an hour, and that person doesn't understand us, the person is speaking gobbledygook that doesn't make any sense to us. No matter how much money we're paying, we're not going to go back to that particular person. So, I think when it comes to care of the soul, we all have some sense of what is helpful and what is not. So, it might not be quite as influenced by notions of expertise and how much we pay for that expertise. And we're talking with Ed Welch, and his new book is Side by Side. You write, so, I am writing for people like me who are willing to move toward other struggling people, but are not confident that they can say or do anything very helpful. If you feel quite weak 
and ordinary if you feel like a mess but have the spirit, you have the right credentials. You are one of the ordinary people God uses to help others. Why is helping people, which would seem to be a sort of basic thing, why is that so scary? I think there can be a bunch of reasons. Sometimes it's not scary. Sometimes we're just preoccupied with our own selves and we don't move toward others. Other times it can be scary because we don't like being stupid. We don't like not having anything to say. We don't like not having answers if somebody raises questions. I think that's part of it. So what do we do? We we say, okay, out of obedience to Christ, the one who's pursued me and moved toward me, I'll move toward other people. And there you are talking to somebody else, and they speak of something that is just overwhelming in their lives that you don't understand. Well, here's what regular old people do. If you don't understand it, you ask more questions. Could you help me to understand it a little bit more? And what we're looking for is we want to share that with the person. If it's hard, we want to somehow share in that hardness with them. And then as we begin to understand that simple question, how can we pray? That's a revolutionary question. It's moving from, okay, I think we understand something of this together. Now, what is it that God says to us? That's embedded in the question, how can we pray? All of us can do that. And that is exquisite ministry. It's saying in the midst of these personal struggles, and sometimes the more intense the personal struggle, the more alone we feel. But to be able to say, essentially, how can we pray? Is saying God cares, he speaks, and he invites us to speak with him about these things. Is there anything more profound than that? (laughs) Is there anything that gets to the very depths of our souls more than such things? To realize that we indeed, in this world, we will have trouble, and now we can speak to the one who is familiar with trouble. There's nothing superficial about that. Those are things we could only understand, not by human effort and investigation, but by revelation. And revelation, by definition, is profound and deep. We can't figure it out by ourselves. I just want to say, I really like the expression, exquisite ministry. <laughs> I'm going to hang on to that and find a way to use that in a sentence on a regular basis. That's one of the more interesting things anyone's ever said in this studio, so I, I appreciate that. Well, I'll give you my most recent illustration of that. Yes. There's a fellow in our church. He is the most quiet, shy, nervous guy that you could ever imagine. And he is getting a sense of what it means to reach out. And he's filled with all kinds of self-doubt. Who am I? And he feels just completely weak. And I watched him last Sunday go from his seat, and this was during a short break that we had in the service, and he looked around and you could see him scanning the area. Who are the people here that I don't know? Who are the people who are a bit marginalized? And I saw him go to these people who he'd never seen before. And he went up and he greeted them. How did you come here? And it was, it, it was just ordinary stuff, but it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And the definition of beauty is what would he normally do? Normally he, well, normally he wouldn't be in church, but normally he would just sit in his seat and not show his ignorance to other people. But what do you do because of Jesus? That's what's embedded in the word exquisite. And here's a guy who moved out and greeted and invited other people and was only because of Jesus. And Mm. ah, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's hard to say how many times I've talked with people who said, I visited a church and no one greeted me. It's such a small thing. And how many times have I stood up after service and seen somebody who was new and thought I should go say hello, but it was almost impossible. It was like stepping out of concrete (laughs) to go greet another person because of all of the uncertainty. The other day, I was going for a walk and there was a fellow uh, lying on on a driveway 
on his back with his jacket or something under his head. But it was an unusual thing to see in a regular, ordinary suburban neighborhood. And uh, I couldn't see very clearly at a distance. And I really struggled to know what to do. Do I approach this fellow? Is he out of his mind? Is he hurt? (laughs) So I got to where he could see me and I could see him, but there was still some distance between us. And I asked him, are you all right? And he he gave me thumbs up, and I wasn't expecting that, so I asked him again, and he gave me thumbs up. So I thought, okay, I take it this fellow's okay, and he's not having a medical emergency. He's just relaxing in this driveway for a few minutes, and this is America. He's free to do that. That's fine. So I checked on him when I came back, and he was gone, and everything was all right. But it was puzzling that it was so difficult to do something so basic as to ask another human being if he was okay, if he's having a medical emergency. That struck me as a strange thing. Uh, (laughs) And maybe symptomatic of me, but also where we are as a culture, that uh, we are really isolated from each other. We talk to each other by text and instant message and Twitter, but actually having a face-to-face conversation is becoming more difficult, I think. And oh, by the way, I think it was great what you did. You, uh, <laughs> well, I kept my distance. You, you moved toward and, and uh, you, you showed a certain amount of care for the person. Let me go back to that guy in my church for a second. Notice how this happens. So, he goes, scans around, somebody who's never been there before, and he greets very warmly. He asks a few questions. I don't know exactly what the questions were. Now, let's say these people come back to church again. And it's likely they will. I mean, you you have meaningful, warm invitation from somebody else, and you don't mind going back to such a place. Next time, he's going to go, and he's going to say, oh, it's great to see you. How are you doing? He didn't ask the question, how are you doing the first time? He just sort of demographic data. I see you're here. You have any kids? And the person says, oh, fine. And he said, good, good. And then say the person comes a third time. And then you say, well, how are you doing? But you notice that question. It's, it's a different it's a, tone. Yeah, and, and and if you ask the person the question the second time, they think you really mean it. And nobody really cares that much about how we're doing. Uh, that at least, you know, we're not accustomed to having those conversations. And so, here's somebody from the church. This is the second or third time he's asked the question. And so, you venture something. Yeah, yeah come to think of it, you know, I'm really, really struggling at work or, or I'm struggling with my kids. Or You see it? There's that movement into a person's life. There's that opportunity. Mm-hmm. How can I pray for you? Let's pray now. It's this very ordinary process, but the Spirit tends to use ordinary things to build His church. And that movement into a genuine human relationship is a powerful thing, especially when it is, if you will, inaugurated with interest, expressions of genuine interest, but then sealed with prayer. That's such a small thing, but that interaction, that engagement with another person could be totally transformative for that other person. Scott, is, I'm, I'm a professional counselor. I'm supposed to be an expert. Been been doing it for decades. So, I have opportunities to watch people grow and change. And typically, when I see unusual growth in the person, I will ask, how does that come about? And a lot of times at this point, it's just, I want to learn. I'm curious. And inevitably, the first thing cited is person at church who invited me over for a meal. This person at church who sent me an email and said they were praying for me. And at that particular moment, I was feeling as alone as I'd ever felt. You know, those are the kinds of things people identify. Now, how does the Spirit work? The Spirit works in ways that we can identify in ways we can't. So, perhaps I was involved in that process of change in the person's life. But the people who are immediately identified are the people who've done that ordinary ministry. And again, I think as we look at our own lives, 
lives who could probably say the same thing. We hear great sermons, and there's a way those accumulation of sermons shape us, and they certainly do. But chances are, along with those sermons, we're probably finding people who had no idea the impact they had, but a question they asked, the way they prayed for us, the way they showed their care. That's the kind of stuff that sticks out. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we are justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. We're talking with Ed Welch about a number of things, among which is his book, Side by Side. And really what we're talking about is concrete, practical ways that ordinary Christians can show the love of Christ to other people in ordinary rather than extraordinary or superhuman ways. And we live in a time after 9-11 when there's a lot of emphasis on heroes. And that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, rushing into a burning building to grab people out wading into a violent and dangerous situation and putting your life on the line or going into combat, those are all remarkable things that deserve recognition. But it might give us the impression that the ordinary isn't all that important. But here you've been sketching for us in a variety of ways, really simple things that almost any Christian can do and make a huge difference in someone's life. And we might be tempted to devalue that and think, well, it's not heroic. I'm not wearing a ministerial robe, or I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. It's not significant. But I think you're saying something else, right? Well, the nature of Scripture is that it should be completely countercultural and different than what we expect. But at the same time, it should make a whole lot of sense to our souls. And and that's what we're – well, I'll say one more thing. It should sound – Countercultural, it should make sense to us and it should be accessible to us. It's scripture's public domain and kids should be able to care for other kids. And that's what we're grappling with. We're we're looking for simple things in scripture, but we're expecting that if these are really ways that that God calls us to care for one another, we expect that the world is probably onto those things as well. And is identified, yeah, these things do help more than we realize. And Scripture does talk a great deal about helping. I, it, you know, just in preparation for this discussion, I just did a quick word search on how the New Testament speaks about helping. And it's interesting, for example, how often the Apostle Paul either mentions people who helped him, for example, Philippians 4.16, or how often he exhorts Christians to be prepared to help their brothers and sisters. He does it repeatedly. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, 2 Corinthians 1, 11, Titus 3, 14. I always go to Phoebe in Romans 16, 1, right, which I think is an interesting place because he tells a congregation, look, Phoebe's coming and she's been valuable in my ministry and I want you to help her conduct her work. So helping is a big theme in the New Testament probably bigger than we often recognize. Isn't it true? The wonderful feature of the Christian life is that light does not consist of us crying out to the Lord and the Lord giving us this nice private little ministry that makes all things better. Rather, he so often works through the Word and he works through other people. 
uh, and the myriad of gifts that other people have. And it's, it's just a great system. It's this communal system we, where we expect that the work of the Spirit is going to be done in ways that might seem a little bit foolish to the world, but it's profound. You said just a minute ago that the Lord has not given us a private ministry that makes everything better. You, you well, I'm saying two things. Say there. that again. No, no, I'm saying that's... two things. One is that all personal issues are dealt with exclusively in our relationship with Christ. Uh, well, it's horizontal and vertical. It's before the Lord, and obviously we call out to Him, but you look at the Psalms, and the Psalms so often have... You call out to the Lord, you call out to other people, you talk to the Lord, you talk to other people. It's all sort of all messed up and all joined together. In, it's both and, in one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, it's just a wonderful system that we have. Well, we're saved into a community, and sometimes when we begin to be involved in the lives of other people in a helping way, a counseling way, the temptation can be to try to become a kind of savior, you know, running around helping everyone, saving everyone, rather than being a part of a community of believers and sort of participating in that communal life, part of which is to love other people, an important part of which is to love other people, to care for them as a part of that community, rather than being a sort of solo mini-savior, if that makes sense. It does. One of the things you're getting at is that we have the freedom in our care for each other to say, I don't know. I simply don't know. That's hugely important, by the way. It's hard to say initially, but once you get the knack of it, you really like it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to say. I say it all the time. Human beings are complicated people, and human struggles are incredibly complicated. And then there's this background of what what is happening. You look at the book of Job, and all these things happen, and Job was not aware of that are part of the struggles. One of the great privileges in the Christian life is simply to be burdened by what a person is going through and say, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. Which, by the way, if a person is hearing a very complicated problem from another person, they say, I don't know what to say, then they understand the person well because they're catching the difficulties of the problem. But what we add, obviously, is let's go to the one who knows. And again, that question, how can we pray? Okay, here's what we know. We know that he loves you in the midst of something that is very chaotic. Here's what we know, that no matter how difficult these things are and confusing, he invites us, he beseeches us to put words on them and speak them to him. So, let's do that. What am I saying? I'm saying, I know lots of things. It doesn't necessarily mean I have the cure to what you're struggling with. When in doubt, let's just go with what we know for sure. We have a God who loves us, and he's called us for particular reasons. We have the opportunities to love other people in his name, and now let's pray. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We started off talking about the cure of souls, but one of your emphases has been that we are also bodies, right? We're mm-hmm. body and soul. And there has been a temptation or a tendency at times to downplay the importance of the body in counseling, in helping. But in my experiences, that's a mistake. As a pastor, in my first uh, congregation, I had a fellow who had been diagnosed uh, schizophrenic. It's a very complicated set of issues that he was facing and well beyond my expertise. But as you say, I did know enough to be with him, to pray with him, to tell him, no, there are not demons coming out of the heating duct. Whatever he was experiencing, that wasn't objective reality. And that was useful. I mean, it wasn't curative in the ultimate sense, but he trusted I was telling the truth. You know, I learned in a new way that we are embodied and we're whole persons. 
So help us understand how that is important or why that's so important to get that fact right. Look at it this way. When we understand some of the contributions of the body, it tends to make us much more patient with people. Here is a typical illustration. I can remember when my daughters were very young and we had one daughter. When she was tired, she would just be a banshee, an absolute banshee. And the first time we're thinking, well, what she's doing is wrong and and we need to deal with this and we need to deal with it right away. And it went really, really bad. <laughs> and But then the second part, just like what you're saying is, hmm, she is really, really tired, tired right now. And her tired might be different than my tired. When she's tired, her mind might be just pure chaos and everything just feels out of control to her. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, honey, it seems like you're a little tired and why don't we go upstairs and get ready for bed? And then then the things that, were, that we think were very important to talk about, and they really were, there are certain ways she was angry and disobedient. We can talk about that when she's doing a little bit better. And what, what is it? It's just, it's saying what she was doing was wrong. And I'm thinking about a situation in the car. The way she was talking to us and to her sister was wrong. But the reality is we don't have to talk about every sin at that particular moment. And when we did, it just went really bad. But once we saw that there were physical features to her struggle, we were calmer, we were more patient, and there's no question we loved her much better because the next day she was willing to deal with some of those spiritual issues that were clearly in her heart. So, we're not just spirits, we're not just souls that happen to inhabit this prison house. We are, in the image of God, body and soul. There's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be a bodily resurrection. Our bodies are going to be glorified. So, as we deal with people, we have to deal with them as they are, both body and soul. And we can't just sort of fix the inside of them as if the outside, as, as if their humanity wasn't essentially physical. I'll give you one real quick illustration of that recently. A friend of mine who was having panic attacks, and the first thing you start thinking is scripture says a lot about fear, and he must have a ton of fear, and that's where we're going to go. But when you listen to him talk about his panic attack, it's very curious. There was no reason for it, and this is typical of panic attacks. They only happen at the best of times when you know everything's calm, everybody's doing well, and you're not thinking about anything particular fearful. So, he's just got this dump of anxiety, and the first thing he did was he cried out to the Lord, Lord, help. I don't know what's happening. Lord, help. And so, when we when we look at that really simply from the scripture, what do we find is the body was doing all kinds of weird things. And in the midst of those weird things, here was a man who did the most important spiritual things he could do. He just cried out to the Lord for help. And in a situation like that, one of the things we're thinking is, hmm, that's beautiful what you just did. In the midst of difficulties, you were able to cry out to Jesus, and I hope that I'm able to do the same thing, analogous difficulties in my own life. But this other stuff, this dump of anxiety, this is just really weird. It it almost seems like your body has a mind of its own, and you can say, no, there's peace in Christ and you're resting in Christ, but your body says, well, just in case, I want to be completely (laughs) mobilized for anything bad that could possibly happen. And it was so helpful for him because he understood his panic attack is there must be some really horrible problem in me for me to have that kind of response to life. But for him to realize that maybe it's his body just doing weird things. It was very encouraging. Not to mention he was able to focus on on how God really helped him to simply cry out, which is the best of things that he could possibly do. Sometimes it's genuine sloth and just flat-out sin, but sometimes it's Lyme's disease or something else that makes a person totally wiped out and just unable to function. And so, it's important to account for all of that if we're really going to love 
fellow image bearers. And that's one of the fun part about ministry is in getting to know someone. We get to know the struggles of their heart and we get to know the unique mm. strengths and weaknesses of their bodies. Should every Christian be a helper, a counselor? Or are there some Christians who, for whatever reason, should just not do that sort of thing? Leave that to other people. <laughs> uh, you're setting me up here. Uh, there's no question that since the Spirit was given, everything has changed. And, and perhaps we could argue in the Old Testament that we shouldn't be going around helping other people because the Spirit was not giving in the same way that we have them right now, and we could say a lot of stupid and bad things. Maybe we could argue that in the Old Testament. We better go to the Spirit-filled or the particularly anointed folks for help. But Jeremiah 31 says everything has changed. Now the Spirit is given, and now the Spirit lives with children and with women and with the disabled and on and on. So, as a result... That's the theological reason why we help one another, because we have the Spirit. And it is ordinary love that we must express to each other day in and day out. It does go to that question, do we expect that we're going to grow in the way we love, grow in our wisdom, grow in our understanding of physical phenomena that can be very difficult and sometimes very complicated? We certainly... As human beings, we expect to grow in wisdom. That's just the way wisdom is. It's not dumped on us, but we grow in it through the arduous process of caring for one another. Do we expect to have more wisdom in how we care? Absolutely, we expect that. But this is ministry for everyone who has the Spirit of God. Through our discussion, it seems to me that one of the theological truths sort of lurking in the background that we need to bring into the foreground as we sort of draw this thing to a conclusion is the reality of the gospel that God the Son became incarnate, took on human flesh for us, obeyed in our place, was crucified for us, died, buried, was raised on the third day for our justification. How does that change the way we relate to other people, particularly as helpers? How does it move us? What does it say to us as we think about helping others, loving others? What does it say to us about helping and loving other people? Oh, what a great question. It's saying that we have just been given the greatest of gifts, the absolute greatest of gifts that goes to the very depths of our soul. And now it's our privilege to offer that to others. So that's one way the gospel animates all of these things. How could we keep the knowledge of the sacrificial love of Christ to ourselves? How could we keep the knowledge of forgiveness of sins to ourselves? How could we keep the, the knowledge that God chooses the outcasts to come to himself? So, the gospel is at the very heart of moving us out. The gospel is also the thing that joins us together. So, this motley group of people who passing interest in one another, now we are one in Christ. And now there is this keener sense that the struggles of one part of the body they affect all of us. So how can we not move toward and seek to encourage and help and to pray with the parts of the body that are struggling? That's the gospel. As you're pointing out, it's wonderful that we end this way. It is indeed the gospel that animates our requests for help from other people, knowing that God himself is the one who hears and gives help and uses other people to help us, and it's what animates our help to others. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.